Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Well, thank you for joining me here for another episode of Then and Now, where we learn from the past to shape a better future. Last session, we covered more of the signs and events leading up to the Zealot Rebellion, including those final signs in the heavens and on earth, which signaled the arrival of Christ and His angelic armies to reward His saints and begin pouring out the wrath on their persecutors. We noted the abundant number of false messiahs that appeared throughout the period leading up to the war, and quoted some of Josephus' statements about the terrors and great signs in the heavens that they saw in those days just before the war, especially the angelic armies that were seen in the air above Palestine, signaling the arrival of Christ in the unseen realm above to begin the wrath outpouring. We noticed the event in the temple on Pentecost when the priest heard the combined voices of a great multitude in the unseen realm crying out, Let us remove hence. We explained how that seems to have been the resurrection of the dead out of the Hadean realm and their entrance into heaven. The rebellion was rapidly strengthening itself. Josephus arrived back from Rome about this time in 66 AD, probably in the summer, late July or early August. And Agrippa II was on his way back from Alexandria when he heard the news about the troubles multiplying in Judea. He came up to Jerusalem and tried to dissuade the rebels to cease their rebellion, but they would not listen. This time in our studies, we're going to be looking at how one of the zealot leaders by the name of Menachem led his zealot force to Masada and ousted the Roman garrison there, then plundered all of the armory and all the weapons, and then returned triumphantly to Jerusalem as if he was a king. One of the other priestly zealot leaders, Eleazar ben Ananias, who already had control of the temple, had stopped the daily sacrifices of Caesar and for all Gentiles about the same time. His father, Ananias ben Nadibus, was killed by Menachem's forces, just as Apostle Paul had predicted eight years earlier. Eliezer avenged his father's death by killing Menachem and his bodyguard troops. There was also a horrible massacre of all the Jewish inhabitants in Caesarea, which incited many more of the moderate Jews to join the rebellion. Well, those are some of the highlights of what we'll be looking at in this session. Uh, Before we get into our study, however, let's go to our Heavenly Father and ask His blessing upon our study. The Living One, the Self-Existing One, and Most High God, we call upon your holy name to wake up your church and the leaders of all the nations, that we might humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, so that you will hear from heaven, withdraw your hand of judgment, and heal our land. Be with us now as we study your sovereign acts in history to bless righteous nations and judge the wicked ones. 
May you help us view history from a proper biblical perspective so that we can share the godly wisdom with others so that all nations will be blessed by the knowledge of your great redemption. We pray this in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, in the late summer of 66 AD, just as the revolt was beginning to break out, some of the pro-war zealots, evidently under the leadership of Menachem, who was a descendant of Judas the Galilean and the founder of the fourth philosophy in Judaism, known as the Zealots, Menachem went to Masada and overpowered the Roman garrison there and then stationed his own occupational force. They broke into the armory there and took all the weaponry back to Jerusalem with them. This seems to have occurred about the same time that Agrippa II was in Jerusalem trying to discourage a rebellion, or maybe immediately afterwards. Josephus also tells us that it occurred about the same time that Eliezer ben Ananias stopped the daily sacrifices for all Gentiles, including the peace offerings from Caesar, as he tells us in the Book of Wars, Book 2, Sections 408 through 410. And all these references are in the PDF outline, so if you get the lesson outline for this podcast, you'll have all these references from Josephus that you can look up and read in their full context. Also in about this time of August, late summer of 66 AD, Josephus tells us about the cessation of the sacrifices for the Romans that was ordered by Eliezer, the son of the former high priest Ananias ben Nadibus. Josephus says that this cessation of the Gentile sacrifices was considered the true beginning of our war with the Romans. He also said that many of the high priests and principal men urged Eleazar not to omit the sacrifice on behalf of the Romans, but Eleazar and his priestly followers would not yield to them. The wealthy and powerful got together and conferred with the high priest, as did the leaders of the Pharisees. Josephus said that they considered this cessation of the peace offerings as putting everything at risk and escalating the conflict beyond the point of no return. So they assembled all the citizens of Jerusalem before the gate of the temple court of the priest and expressed their outrage at this rebellious act, which would surely provoke the Romans to war. They stated to Eliezer and his men that they considered this action as totally unjustifiable and reminded them that all previous generations had adorned the temple with the donations of foreigners and had always accepted what had been presented to them by foreign nations, especially Rome. They stated that this action of stopping the peace offerings was the highest instance of impiety and was bringing up novel rules of strange divine worship. They were running the risk of having their whole country condemned for impiety by not allowing any foreigners except Jews alone to sacrifice or worship in the temple. They were rejecting both the sacrifices and oblations of not only Caesar, but all Romans and all Gentiles. This action was causing even the Jewish people to fear 
that their own sacrifices might be rejected as well, or that it would cause the Romans to destroy the temple and end the sacrificial system altogether. Then Josephus says that the seditious inside the temple paid no attention to these words by the leaders and went on with their war preparations while neglecting to perform all their normal and proper sacerdotal duties. Then Josephus says that these seditious priests who occupied the temple and who had stopped the sacrifices of foreigners were profaning the temple by their presence in it with their weapons of war. There was a lot more going on here than just the rejection of the emperor's peace offerings. It was a wholesale cessation of all sacrifices and offerings from and on behalf of all Gentiles. The rejection of the daily sacrifice on behalf of Caesar was an open declaration of independence and defiance against Rome, and it was making official a revolt that was already well underway since May of 66. Josephus says that this event signaled the official beginning of the war with the Romans, and that it occurred a week or so before the festival of wood-gathering. Shortly after rejecting the sacrifices of foreigners, Eliezer and his temple guard and a group of rebel priests took control of the whole area around the temple. The war had now officially begun. Some of the citizens of Jerusalem who were still bitter over the offenses of Gessius Florus celebrated this declaration of independence. But many others mourned this action by the rebel priest. This rejection of the sacrifices for foreigners was understood by many of the Jewish people, including the moderate priest, as being a nullification of the validity of the whole sacrificial system. Some of the other sacrifices for Jews only continued, but not consistently, and not according to the pattern prescribed in the law. The common people and other non-Zealot priests deplored this sad state of affairs and considered it a nullification of the whole sacrificial system. We have already seen above that Josephus considered it a gross impiety and a profanation of the temple. In the eyes of the Romans, it was certainly viewed as a nullification of their right to offer any sacrifices, since that right was conditioned on their offering up the peace offerings of Caesar. Martin Hingle, in his book, The Zealots, pages 355 through 366, suggests that there probably was a connection between this rejection of Gentile sacrifices and the 18 benedictions, called the Amidah, or Shemana Ezra, of the Shamaites, which seem to have been composed at about this same time. One of the 18 benedictions contained or implied a prohibition against accepting gifts from Gentiles. Also, according to some rabbinic sources cited by Hingle, the sacrificial animal that had been sent to Jerusalem by the Roman Emperor Nero on that very day was rejected by the priest Zechariah because of a slight imperfection in the animal which another Jew Kamza ben Kamza had deliberately introduced, 
and conveniently not noticed by anyone until it was taken to the temple to be sacrificed. The fourth philosophy of the Zealots, originated by Judas the Galilean, considered the idea of offering a sacrifice to God for a man, such as the Roman emperor, who described himself as God, as being totally offensive. It is no surprise, then, that Eliezer, sympathetic to the Zealot cause, used that principle of the Zealots and the 18 benedictions as justification for rejecting all sacrifices by the Gentiles. Hingle describes this rejection of the Roman emperor's sacrifice as follows. This rupture in the traditional service of the temple signaled the Jewish cult's break officially with Roman rule. It could therefore be claimed that the war against Rome began in the temple. Hingle also mentions the possibility that Eleazar may have performed the high priestly function during Yom Kippur in AD 66, since he was in control of the temple mount at that time and was the son of one of the high priests, Ananias ben Nadibus, and was the Sagon, or captain of the temple guard, at the time of the revolt. If true, that would mean that Eleazar grievously violated the law and set himself up in the temple as being above Moses and God, which was a very lawless thing to do, as we see described for us in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul talks about the man of lawlessness who would do this very kind of thing. We have always assumed that the references in Daniel 9, verse 27, and Daniel 12, verse 11, to the sacrifices ceasing were fulfilled in the siege of July 17th, A.D. 70, when the daily sacrifice and all sacrifices ceased because of the lack of sacrificial animals and the lack of priests to offer them. But that late date does not seem to fit the statements in Daniel, nor in Matthew 24:15 regarding the abomination, nor the statements about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We also know that by the time the zealots chose a high priest to perform the Yom Kippur duties in winter of AD 68, the whole temple system was in disarray and a mere sham. The priest they chose, Phineas ben Samuel, was an uneducated and untrained countryman who had to be coached on everything he did. This forces us to look earlier in the rebellion for another cessation of sacrifices, and the cessation of all Gentile sacrifices by Eleazar in August of AD 66 seems to be a prime candidate for its fulfillment. This cessation by Eleazar is far more significant than most interpreters have assumed. Josephus puts a lot of emphasis on it as being the very event which marked the beginning of the revolt as a kind of declaration of independence from Rome. It very well could be the fulfillment of Daniel 9.27 and Daniel 12.11. It is a possibility that needs to be more carefully analyzed and seriously considered. You'll want to look at Josephus' comments on the possible prophetic connection with these rebel priests in Wars, Book 4, Sections 386 through 388. 
It is not clear whether Josephus has reference to Daniel 9 and 12, or whether it was to some other canonical or non-canonical prophet like Enoch. In Daniel, the incident with Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC was viewed as an abomination of desolation. At that time, it was a pagan ruler demanding unclean sacrifices to be offered to Zeus on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. The righteous Hasmonean priest rose up in revolt to purify the temple from those abominable sacrifices and restore the true worship of Yahweh. But here in AD 66, we see something quite different, spiritually speaking. This time, the Roman emperor was offering clean sacrifices on the true altar in the undefiled temple in Jerusalem. And it was the unrighteous priest, rebel priest, who rejected those legitimate Gentile sacrifices with which God was well pleased, and instead of purifying the temple by this action, they profaned it. Quite a contrast between these two priestly actions. The priest in Antiochus' day cleansed the temple from Gentile profanation. The priest in AD 66 profaned the temple by rejecting the clean sacrifices of the Gentiles. It is no wonder that Josephus, a descendant of the righteous Hasmonean priest, described Eliezer's action as a profanation of the temple. At the very time when God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, was saving the Gentiles and bringing their spiritual sacrifices and offerings into his holy temple, the church, and the spiritual temple in the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jews were rejecting the sacrifices and offerings of the Gentiles and refusing to bring them into their physical temple in Jerusalem. Is it any wonder, then, that God poured out his wrath upon the nation of Israel? The temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations and a source of blessing for all the nations. The Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah, talk much about the gathering in of the Gentiles into God's house in the last days and how the Gentiles would bring their sacrifices and offerings to the temple and come to Jerusalem for the festivals. Notice in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, he says, Even those foreigners I will bring to my holy house and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations." Those rebel priests who had taken possession of the temple were thieves. Josephus tells us that John of Giscala later melted down the gold and silver objects that had been donated to the temple by the Gentiles and used it to fund his war effort. Josephus labeled that behavior as temple robbery. Notice also what Jesus says about this kind of activity in Mark chapter 11 verse 17. Jesus began to teach and say to them, right there in the temple, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Boy, did that ever apply to 
these days of 66 AD, when they were literally robbing the Gentile sacrifices for their own benefit. All of that was fulfilled spiritually in the church as the Gentiles were grafted into the rich olive tree of spiritual Israel, as it says in Romans 11, so that they would attain to the unity of the faith with the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 4. But what a contrast here between the physical temple and the spiritual temple in the last days. The Jews were rejecting the sacrifices of the Gentiles and going to war with them at the very time when the Christians were accepting the sacrifices of the Gentiles and making peace with them. Now, I don't know if Daniel had reference to this idea when he mentioned the cessation of the sacrifices, but in view of the two contrasts we have just noted here, it would certainly seem possible. And so I suggest it for your consideration. Also here in August of 66 AD, the men of power, the moderates, tried to persuade Eleazar to restore the sacrifice on behalf of the emperor and all Gentiles. But Eleazar would not listen to them. Josephus says he himself was a part of the group that tried to persuade Eleazar to restart the sacrifices and quit the rebellion. So the men of power, the moderates, sent ambassadors such as Simon, the son of Ananias, the brother of Eleazar, Costobar, Saul, and Antipas, to Florus and Agrippa, asking for reinforcement troops to help them put down the growing rebellion. Florus, of course, ignored this request, hoping that the revolt would get worse so that the Romans would come in force and wipe out the Jews. But Agrippa did send some reinforcements to help the moderates slow down and perhaps even stop the rebellion. Agrippa sent 3,000 horsemen. Using these troops, the men of power, the moderates, seized the upper city while the rebels controlled the lower city and the temple. But there ensued seven days of battle between those pro-Roman forces in the upper city and the rebel forces in the lower city in the temple area. And this occurred in August on the 6th through the 13th days of the month of Av, the same month four years later when the temple was burned and destroyed. There were seven days of battle between the pro-Roman forces in the upper city and the rebel forces in the lower city and temple area. The dates for these seven days of fighting were given by Josephus as of 6th through 13th, which would be around August the 26th through September the 2nd in AD 66. Since he tells us that the next day afterwards was the Feast of Xylophory, which fell on of 14th, powerful Jewish men inside Jerusalem who were moderates, requested military assistance from Florus and Agrippa to stop the rebellion from gaining momentum. Florus did nothing because he wanted the Jews to revolt so he could crush them, but Agrippa sent 3,000 horsemen. But it was too little and too late. 
With the help of Agrippa's forces, the leading citizens, the chief priest, and all the peace-loving moderates occupied the upper city. The lower city and temple area was under the control of the rebel forces. There were seven days of fighting between these two forces, with neither of them gaining any significant advantage. This was Jewish men spilling Jewish blood inside the city of Jerusalem, where it ought not to be. This was an abomination of the holy city. Well, since there was no progress made by either side in that seven days of battle, the Sicarii figured out a way to more than even the odds. And so on the next day after that seven days of battle was the feast of wood carrying, and the Sicarii sneaked in among the supposedly unarmed people who had to pass through the moderates to get into the temple, and thus were able to join forces with the rebels in the temple and reinforce them and strengthen them so that the rebel forces were now able to renew their attack on the moderates who were protected by Agrippa's forces. The Sicarii and the other lower-class citizens posing as worshipers tricked the pro-Roman soldiers into letting them enter the temple for the Feast of Silophory, which fell on the 14th day of Av, September the 3rd. But once inside, they joined the rebel forces. These reinforcements greatly empowered the rebel priest under the command of Eleazar ben Ananias, and emboldened by this sudden influx of new recruits, the zealots broke forth from the temple area and attacked the pro-Roman forces. They forced the supporters and troops of Agrippa out of the upper city, including the pro-Roman high priest Ananias ben Nadibus all of whom fled to Herod's palace, where they were guarded by the royal and Roman soldiers. Then the rebel forces burned the house of Ananias, the palace of Agrippa, and the archive building where all the debt records were kept. This latter action, of course, endeared the zealots, to all the poorer folk whose debts had now been abolished and erased by the records being burned. So a lot of them joined the zealots out of gratitude for this freedom from their debt, which increased the ranks of the rebels even more. On August the 26th of 66 AD, the Tower of Antonia was attacked by the rebels. And after a two-day siege, were able to overpower and kill the Roman garrison there in the Tower of Antonia. From here onwards, the Tower of Antonia was under the control of the rebel forces until the Roman forces under Titus recaptured it late in the siege of AD 70. Next, the rebel forces attacked Herod's palace, where they persisted day and night for several days trying to starve out the defenders there. And so we see the zealots now pretty much in control of the whole city uh, under the command of Eleazar ben Ananias. He's the guy who started the war and he's the guy who got control of the city first. Now at this time, after the zealots took control of the city, it would have been too risky for anyone 
Jews or Christians to be leaving Judea and Jerusalem at this time and trying to flee to safe havens outside Palestine. The zealots were recruiting everyone at the point of the sword to stay and support the war effort. They were watching the gates to make sure nobody got out easily. Not only Florus was moving troops in the area, but also the zealot leaders Menachem and Eliezer were positioning their troops at Masada and inside Jerusalem as well. Armies were not only encircling Jerusalem, they were inside Jerusalem, taking control of the city away from the Romans and Agrippa's loyalist forces. All refugees would have needed to have left Jerusalem long before this. This was not a safe time to try to get out of the city. Late in August and early September, when the revolt had uh, already begun, and of course the Zealot forces had pretty much taken control of the whole city of Jerusalem. Well, it was about this time that Menachem returned from Masada, where his soldiers had broke open Herod's armory there and taken all the weapons out to arm his own men, and then brought the rest of them with him to Jerusalem to arm the rest of the zealots there in Jerusalem. And he returned triumphantly to Jerusalem like a king, where he assumed command of the rebel forces attacking Herod's palace so that Eliezer could retreat to the temple and not be in danger of giving up his fortress. He let Menachem take control of the forces in the upper city, where Agrippa's troops and the moderates and the Romans were under siege. Menachem was the son or grandson of Judas the Galilean, who had attempted a revolt back in AD 6. This was a dynasty of zealots who had urged the Jews for two generations to stop paying taxes to Rome and fight for their independence. This was known among the Jews as the fourth philosophy, besides the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Now that the revolt had begun, this was the day that the zealots had waited for and prepared for. Menachem, who was the son or grandson of Judas the Galilean, believed he was the right man at the right time to lead the zealots for such a time as this. On September the 25th, A.D. 66, Menachem allowed Agrippa's men and the loyalist Jews safe passage out of Herod's palace. But the Roman soldiers fled to the three palace towers, Hippicus, Phasael, and Mariam. The palace was then burned. This occurred on the sixth of the month, Gorpius, or if you're following the Jewish calendar, it was Elul, which would have been September the 25th in AD 66. The next day, Menachem found Ananias ben Nadibus, who's the former high priest and father of Eleazar, and Menachem also found his brother Hezekiah, both of whom were moderates. They were hiding, and he put them to death. This Ananias was high priest during the years 47 to 58 AD, and he was high priest at the very time of Paul's trial in 58 AD. 
Paul had predicted that God was about to strike Ananias. And sure enough, eight years later, on this very day, September the 6th in 66 AD, he was killed by Menachem, just as Apostle Paul had predicted eight years before that. Josephus says that Ananias was caught near the canal in the palace grounds where he had been hiding and was killed on the next day after the rebels had taken control of the palace and the Romans had fled to the three towers, which was on the seventh day of the month, Gorpius, or Elul. This victory over the moderates inflated the ego of Menachem so much, Josephus says, that Menachem believed himself to have no rival in the leadership of the revolt and became overbearingly tyrannical. Eliezer and his men could not tolerate that, so they formed a conspiracy to kill Menachem and take full control of the rebel forces. Well, soon after that, I think the next day after that, Menachem put on the royal garments and pompously went up into the temple to worship with some of his armed men as bodyguards. While he was in the temple, Menachem was attacked by the priestly rebels under the command of Eleazar, who was the son of the Ananias that Menachem had just killed. And Eleazar, of course, was avenging his father's death in this attack. He was not just uh, attacking Menachem to get control of the Zealot forces. He was also avenging his father's death. Well, Eleazar's forces were able to capture and kill Menachem in revenge for killing his father, and it totally disrupted Menachem's forces in Jerusalem. A few of them escaped to Masada, where they remained until the end of the war. One of whom escaped was Eleazar ben Yer, who was a relative of Menachem, and he was among those who fled to Masada at that time. Well, this very effectively put an end to Menachem's role in the revolt. Eliezer had now regained control of all the Zealot forces in Jerusalem, so he was back in total control once again. Josephus tells us that he left the temple about this time and rejoined the chief priest and leading Pharisees to consult with them about what needed to be done. They ended up joining with the rebels, at least ostensibly, since as priests they needed access to the temple to perform their priestly duties, and the temple was under the control of Eleazar and his zealot soldiers. Many of the priests went along with Eleazar so that they could continue their function as priests in the temple. Well, it was about this time also, in September of 66, or very early October, when Eleazar and his forces tricked the Roman garrison to leave the three palace towers. Eliezer promised to spare their lives if they would abandon the fortress and lay down their arms. But as soon as the Romans came out and laid down their arms and started walking away, Eliezer and his men fell upon them and slaughtered them in breach of their agreement. To make matters worse, this massacre of the Roman garrison happened on a Sabbath day when Jews were forbidden from fighting, much less killing people innocently like that. Josephus says 
The city was all over polluted with such abominations immediately after that. The people in Jerusalem made public lamentation over this treacherous killing of the Roman soldiers and mourned in dread of the Roman reaction to it or divine vengeance against them for breaking the Sabbath. The inhabitants of Jerusalem grieved and Even the moderate leaders were lamenting the consequences that they would now suffer because of this crime of Eleazar and his soldiers. Well, the divine vengeance did not long delay. For on the very same day and hour that Eleazar had killed the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem, Josephus says, there was over 20,000 Jews slaughtered by the Greco-Syrian population in Caesarea. Josephus says, Caesarea was emptied of its Jewish inhabitants. And Florus helped the Greco-Syrian soldiers in their attempt to wipe out all the Jews there in Caesarea. Any of the Jews that tried to get out of Caesarea Florus captured them and sent them to the galley ships. Well, when the news of this rebellion had reached Cestius Gallus in Syria, he began preparing his troops for the march to Jerusalem. Well, the Jews were not too happy with 20,000 of their fellow countrymen being killed in Caesarea by the Greeks and the Syrians. It enraged them so much and provoked them to retaliatory action. The Jews quickly assembled militia bands and attacked numerous villages of the Syrians and neighboring cities, killing the Greek and Syrian residents of any cities where the Gentiles were in the minority, such as Philadelphia, Sebenitis, Gerasa, Pella, Scythopolis, Gadara, Hippus, Golanitis, Cadassa, Ptolemaeus, Gaba, Caesarea, Sebast, Ascalon, Anthedon, Gaza, and Cyprus. Note that Pella was one of the cities attacked by these Zealot bands. This attack occurred in AD 66 after the Christians had supposedly already fled there during the years 80-62-64. to But the true Christians were raptured out of there two or three months before this massacre, so that there were no true Christians left there in Pella by the time of this attack. There were armies encircling cities all over Palestine at this time. The rebel forces attacked Ascalon a second time under Niger the Perean and lost 8,000 more men, in addition to the 10,000 they had lost the first time. Niger was nearly killed, but his survival was considered to be a providential sign that God would use him to defeat the Romans. However, that was a false hope. He was a very brilliant strategist and valiant warrior, and Therefore, the zealots envied him and feared that he would take over the leadership. So in the internecine strife that broke out in the city in AD 68, the zealots found an excuse to kill Niger 
out of jealousy and fear that he might take away their power as leaders of the revolt. Well, after all these zealot bands had killed so many Greeks and Syrians in the cities around Palestine, the Greeks and the Syrians retaliated and killed all the Jewish inhabitants within their cities. Immediately upon the outbreak of the rebellion, Gentile communities loyal to Rome began plundering, evicting, and slaughtering their Jewish inhabitants. Non-Jewish citizens of Scythopolis killed 13,000 of their Jewish inhabitants. There was further violence against Jewish communities in Ascalon, Ptolemais, Tyre, and other cities which had large Jewish communities. There was a riot between Jews and Greeks in Alexandria. The Jewish population of Damascus, numbering 10,000, were rounded up and killed. Josephus says it was common in those days, which is September and maybe October of 66 A.D., to see cities filled with dead bodies lying unburied, and whole provinces full of such calamities. Some Syrian cities, such as Antioch, Sidon, and Apamea, spared their Jewish inhabitants, but in the retaliatory raids by the Syrians against the Jews, Josephus mentions some of the largest Jewish casualties of the war. For instance, in Scythopolis, there was 13,000 Jews killed. At Ascalon, there was 2,500. At Ptolemais, 2,000 Jews. At Tyre, at Hippos, a great number was killed and imprisoned. Same at Gadara. Alexandria, 50,000 were killed. And Josephus says it overflowed with blood. Damascus, as we mentioned, had 10,000 Jewish people killed in one hour's time, Josephus says. Joppa also had 8,400 killed. That's where Apostle Peter had spent a lot of time preaching the gospel and establishing churches there in Joppa. 8,400 Jewish people were killed in Joppa. In Asamon, 2,000 more were killed. And so, There was a lot of bloodshed against the Jews after the war broke out. Well, this will just about wrap it up for this session. We've seen now the the revolt break out in full regalia, and so it's well underway now. It's irreversible, and the Romans are starting to prepare their attack. And we'll look at that next time and talk about what Cestius Gallus does in response to all of this uh, Jewish revolt activity. If any of our listeners have questions or comments about what we have looked at in this session, don't hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Lord willing, we will study together again next week. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. 
Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future. 